Welcome to Sojourner True. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we continue our Black History Month coverage with a focus on this year's Black History Month theme, Black Health and Wellness, discussing present day and historic Black health challenges. Our guest is Dr. Chandra Ford, founding director of the Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice and Health at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. And for our weekly Earth Watch, environmentalist Dawn Chapman joins us to discuss the latest of the toxic Westlake landfill Superfund site, which is based in St. Louis, Missouri. She lives within miles of the site. She will share with us what the site is, its impact on her community, and what the federal government has done thus far, as well as the ongoing demands of campaigners pressing to clean up the site. She is with Just Moms STL, Just Moms St. Louis. And artist and activist David Trujillo joins us to discuss his latest play, Legacy of a Garage Band. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted, women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We all also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Eileen Alfandari. President Biden says an elite U.S. military force killed one of the world's most wanted terrorists, the leader of the self-styled Islamic State group. During an overnight raid in Syria's northwestern Idlib province, the raid near the Turkish border targeted Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. He took over as head of the militant group in 2019, just days after its leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi died during a U.S. raid in the same area. A U.S. official says al-Qurayshi died as al-Baghdadi did by exploding a bomb that killed himself and members of his family, including women and children, as U.S. special forces approached. Six children are reported dead. There was no independent confirmation that they were killed by a suicide bombing as claimed by the U.S., or by U.S. forces who carried out the raid. In either case, Assistant Professor of Politics and International Security Afsal Ashraf told Al Jazeera, incidents like these don't end the dangers posed by radicalized groups that the U.S. ultimately helped to create. The problem that the United States uh, hasn't really come to terms with is that even though it feels it's doing the right thing by uh, attacking the these uh, terrorists who everybody decides, uh, agrees, uh, are, are people that need to be um, got rid of one way or another. The problem is that uh, the, the creation of these terrorists is primarily the result of the superpowers, the United States and, of course, Russia in the past, uh, creating ungoverned spaces, uh, destroying effective governments um, and, and allowing these 
terrorist organizations to flourish. The operation came as the self-styled Islamic State has been trying for a resurgence with a series of attacks in the region, including a 10-day assault late last month to seize a prison in Syria. New diplomatic efforts to defuse the crisis over Ukraine were overshadowed by military preparations and rhetoric. Turkey's president traveled to Ukraine's capital for talks with President Volodymyr Zelensky. Turkey has ties with both Russia and Ukraine and is hoping to play a mediating role. Meantime, the Russian defense minister was in Belarus to check on preparations for major war games the two nations have scheduled to begin next week. The Belarusian president said the goal is to reinforce his country's border with Ukraine. The head of the NATO military alliance accused Russia of carrying out the biggest military deployment in Belarus since the Cold War. For its part, the Pentagon announced a deployment of U.S. troops to Germany, Poland, and Romania. Jonah Chester reports. The U.S. government is deploying more troops to Europe as tensions between NATO allies and Russia continue to rise. President Joe Biden will be shifting about 1,000 Germany-based troops to Romania and deploying an additional 2,000 soldiers to both Poland and Romania. Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby says the U.S. is not providing troops to fight a Russian incursion into Ukraine, but is supplying Ukraine with weapons and supplies to defend itself. I want to be very clear about something. These are not permanent moves. They are moves designed to respond to the current security environment. Last week, the Pentagon put an additional 8,500 troops on heightened alert. I'm Jonah Chester for Pacifica Network and Public News Service. A coalition of 100 peace and social justice groups has signed a letter urging the Biden administration to agree to halt NATO's expansion and to pursue diplomacy. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher of The Nation magazine. She said heightening tensions between the U.S. and Russia could lead either side to blunder into an accidental war between the world's two most heavily nuclear-armed nations. The escalation is very dangerous and particularly dangerous because it could be a tripwire. The accidental nature of military conflict is something we've seen over the decades. And it's been underreported that U.S. bomber flights have been flying 12 miles close to the Russian border that there are provocations on both sides in the Black Sea. And that's very, very dangerous. Ex-Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke is set to leave prison today after serving less than four years on a second-degree murder charge for the killing of black teenager Laquan McDonald. Van Dyke's relatively short stint behind bars is drawing condemnation. A prominent Chicago minister said it's the ultimate illustration that black lives don't matter as much as other lives. The NAACP this week asked Attorney General Merrick Garland to bring federal civil rights charges against Van Dyke, who is white. McDonald's grandmother has asked for the same thing. No response yet from the Justice Department. A new analysis finds a large number of U.S. corporations in the food and energy industries are raising consumer costs while raking in massive profits and beefing up executive pay. I'm Eileen Alfandiri for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. As we continue our Black History Month coverage, let's go to a clip summarizing its history. Let's go to that clip now. The United States and Canada recognize Black History Month but its founder hoped for a different future for Black history. Carter G. Woodson, the Harvard-educated historian who established Black History Month, hoped Black history would become so ingrained in American history that Black History Month would be unnecessary. 
But in 1926, when he began Negro History Week, the second week in February, he had two objectives. To prove to white America that blacks had played important roles in the creation of America and deserved to be treated equally as citizens. And second, to increase the visibility of black life in history. At a time when the media was portraying the black community negatively with anti-black racist imagery, like black caricatures, blackface minstrel shows, and films like the 1927 hit, The Jazz Singer. In 1976, Woodson's Association for the Study of American Life and History was such the annual theme for every Black History Month, lobbied for Black History Week to become a month, and got President Gerald Ford to make the first proclamation. Every president since then, except for Donald Trump, has proclaimed the new theme annually. Congress officially recognized Black History Month in 1986. Black History Month is often controversial with calls for Whiteness History Month or Confederate History Month to others, including some black people saying it's outlived its usefulness or that it's antithetical to American values. But despite the official designation, there are no federal requirements for teaching black history in school curriculums. And on an average, less than 9% of history class is spent on black history. In some states, it's completely ignored. All righty. The theme for this Black History Month is Black Health and Wellness. And by the way, that clip was from USA Today. This year's Black History Month theme is timely given the devastation the COVID-19 pandemic and all its variants have devastated black and brown communities. The Los Angeles Times is reporting that although the Omicron variant first exploded in the U.S. in more affluent communities where air travel is more frequent, ultimately, according to the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, black and brown communities were the hardest hit. According to the Los Angeles Times report, initially the vaccine benefited white communities and contrast the communities of color. But today in Los Angeles County, only 52% of black and Latino people are vaccinated in contrast to 70% of white people and 82% of Asian and Pacific Islander residents. These figures give us a snapshot of the nation. Vaccine hesitancy among the black population go back to mistrust of historic federal government health policies. For example, the infamous Tuskegee experiment where black men were purposefully infected to see how they would react to venereal disease. This disparity has been exacerbated by right-wing misinformation that have politicized the COVID vaccines. But historically, health disparities and access have long impacted the black community. The 1896 Supreme Court decision on separate but equal meant that health and other institutions remained separate but were unequal. It took decades of campaigning to stop segregation in health care, but to this day, black patients are still treated differently than their white counterparts, a result of both implicit and explicit racial bias. Black maternal health death rates, for example, in the United States are two to three times higher than white maternal death rates, making black maternal death rates in the United States the highest among wealthy nations. And asthma and other respiratory ailments are at epidemic levels among black children and all also elders. Contamination due to pollution are more concentrated in communities of color than others. And now states under conservative governorship and legislatures are resisting expanding Medicaid, which would expand a more health care 
to low-income people. By the way, in terms of contamination, indigenous lands are greatly contaminated as a result of the extraction industries. But today, we discuss the state of Black health in the United States. I'd like to welcome our guest back to Sojourner Truth, Dr. Chandra Ford, lead editor with Derek Griffin, Marino Bruce, and Keon Gilbert of Racism, Science, and Tools for the Public Health Profession. She is founding director of the Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health, and professor of Community Health Sciences at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. She is a social epidemiologist. She earned a doctorate from the Gillings School of Global Public Health at the University of North Carolina and completed postdoctoral training in social medicine at the University of North Carolina. Also, she continued her studies at Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health, where she was the W.K. Kellogg Foundation Health Scholar. She has served as president of the Society for the Analysis of African-American Public Health Issues, a member of the National Academy of Medicine Committee on Community-Based Solutions to Promote Health Equity in the United States and co-chair of the Committee on Science of the American Public Health Association's Anti-Racism Collaborative. Dr. Chandra Ford, you've been busy. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, so this year's theme for Black History uh, Month, Black and Wellness, I suppose not surprising given what's happening in the tragic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on Black and Brown communities. But they have also, they have broadened it to include not not only looking at the legacy of scholars and, and doctors, etc., but doulas and midwives and naturopaths and herbalists, etc. But Dr. Ford, so let's start, first of all, going back a bit to the history of health disparities for the Black community in the United States. It's been a long struggle from the days, the slave days, and to this present moment, there's still a lot of issues and challenges. Dr. Ford. I really appreciated your introduction um, because it does situate things. There's never been a time in the experience of Black people in this country when health disparities were not an issue. However, there is a period of time a long period of time where disparities were not even considered important to acknowledge. And the work of the early African-American abolitionists, certainly Douglas and Du Bois, and then, you know, the work around National Negro Health Week, along with Negro History Week, Carter G. Woodson working on that, and Booker T. Washington and others, to try to not only improve our well-being, but also to demonstrate that the stereotype about Black people as being sickly, as being lacking the constitution to survive were just stereotypes and that in fact we do have at least a strong constitution of in that time really focusing on quote unquote the white race um, and this is really important as a question of citizenship being able to demonstrate that we can contribute to society uh, that we have the physical capability the, the physical capacity uh, to withstand all of the threats of daily life now, the interesting thing about this is that the stereotype of African-Americans as lacking the physical constitution uh, to be able to contribute meaningfully as citizens 
um, goes against the very notion of um, of slavery in some respects. So why would we, on the one hand, rely on a people to carry out the burden of physical labor, and then uh, conveniently limit their access to full citizenship by asserting that they cannot, uh, they do not have the physical constitution to be able to contribute meaningfully. So there has always been, um, there have always been disparities. We have not always, the society has not always been concerned about those disparities in terms of what it means to value the life and well-being of Black people. But Black people have been. Um, and we have done uh, the work through, we have attempted to involve our, to become involved in the medical professions and other healthcare professions in those formal institutions. But we have also historically been uh, very active in whatever traditional approaches that uh, communities might know or have. Um, and those include drawing on the uh, knowledge of women, for instance, um, caretakers and um, mothers uh, in, in ways that are not often incorporated into our healthcare system today. So um, in terms of disparities, it's really only in the 1980s, the late 1980s, 1985, um, when then US uh, Secretary of Health, Education and Welfare convened a task force made up of people of color largely to begin to look at what is the status of the health of people of color across this country. And it's in that period that the term and the notion of health disparities actually arises. And what it is drawing attention to is the fact that prior to that, when we talk about research, health research, medicine, and, and so on, much of the concern was about what was happening to the average American. And that was often based on what was happening to a straight white male or to a, to a white man, and then sort of generalized to others. Um, so this period following the um, mid-1980s is really when we even get the notion, the concept that the well-being of some communities is not the same as what happens for white men. And there has been a struggle within the fields of public health, medicine, and the other health sciences, certainly since then and even before then, to recognize that the root causes of the health disparities are not characteristics of the population. They are not racial traits and attributes. They are, in fact, these broader social injustices, which then create inequalities. And because the broader social injustices occur along the lines of race and ethnicity, they are indeed racism. When we see the health disparities, they look like they are somehow tied to the race and ethnicity of 
the different communities that we see. So yeah. this is a battle that we're still fighting today. In um, April of last year, then incoming um, head of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky declared racism is a public health problem. And so I was really pleased to see that um, the highest sort of public service intervention organization in our nation dedicated to public health was acknowledging, in many ways, finally acknowledging after much work internal to the CDC and outside of it in the field of public health, that racism is a problem socially, yes, but also it's a problem for the physical and mental well-being of our communities. Um, and not only, certainly we bear the brunt of the adverse impacts of racism, but if we were not ingrained and committed to our racism in the society, I would suspect that we would see well-being for white people improve as well. Um, just because some of the circumstances that, some of the circumstances that are kept in place um, in order to keep, for instance, uh, people of color from quote unquote exploiting the system, harm not only the well being of those intended recipients of those barriers or challenges, but they make it harder for everyone. For instance, when there are uh, regulations to limit who can access emergency care. Um, first of all, we all pay when we have members of our communities who are sick and needing care but unable to receive it. Uh, we pay in terms of cost. Someone's bearing those costs. We are. But we also pay in terms of um, what happens in our communities. COVID is really making this clear. We are not disconnected from one another. Um, and the well-being of my neighbor, even if I have never opened my eyes and my heart to see and connect with my neighbor, the well-being of my neighbor nevertheless affects the well-being of me, my family, and my community. Picking yeah. up on, on that point, really, you're making a, a lot of really critical points here. In terms of, you know, we see that uh, fighting and campaigning, for example, historically, to end segregation, uh, Barbara Bernie's brilliant film, The Power to Heal, um, you know, shows us that, that the power mm -hmm. to deseg, the, the fight to desegregate hospitals uplifted everybody because that is really, in a way, but what in so many ways won uh, Medicare for people across the country. And we see examples of that again and again. The Poor People's Campaign says when you lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And I think that's what uh, you were seeing here because again and again, when those of us of African descent, indigenous brown people win some rights, it ends up benefiting uh, the entire community. So I just wanted to underscore that point, but also to talk about, you know, people think of, of racism and its impact as some kind of extraction, uh, you know, uh, 
um, abstract thing. But when we're looking at a black health, we're not only looking at our physical health, we're looking at mental and emotional health. And it is beginning to come out that having to deal with all the microaggressions and racism day in and day out has a definite impact on the health of, of uh, the victims, so to speak, um, in terms of uh, high blood pressure and a, a, a series of other uh, health challenges. And I wonder if you could uh, talk about that a little bit, because then it, it's looked at like somehow we're weak or we're inferior, as opposed to, look, we have a lot of this underlying stuff because day in and day out, hour to hour to hour, we are really dealing about what it means to be black or brown living in these United States. Dr. Chandra Ford. That's absolutely right. So there is a growing body of work that demonstrates empirically that the chronic exposure to racism day in and day out literally wears on the body. And in fact, um, one way to think of it is it's actually aging the body so that you might look at someone who's 20 years old, but internally their body is, um, a, let's say, a decade. I'm just gra grabbing that term out of the air because it depends on the outcome. But you, a, a decade or more older. Um, and so the body is experiencing what you would expect someone to experience much later in life. It's cheating the person out of that. And it affects, there's so many health uh, conditions that are tied to stress, um, meaning they get worse as a consequence of stress. So we can think easily about um, mental health um, because it's, it's really apparent that someone would have um, worse mental health due to stress, but there's um, all the kinds of cardiovascular disease, um, uh, blood pressure, those kinds of things. Um, even, you know, immune responses, people have been trying to study how does stress affect immune responses. That's been difficult to document, um, but we suspect that there should be some, we hear it all the time in terms of um, when we're stressed in general in life, that those are the times when we're most likely to become sick um, with the, like uh, the flu or other infectious conditions. So we're, we're trying to see how that relate, how, what kind of evidence we can generate around that. Um, one of the big indicators of the real um, sort of physical bearing down on the body of this chronic stress of racism is tied to maternal mortality. And even more significantly, uh, in public health, we use infant mortality as a signal, really, a red flag about this, the overall state of the well-being of a community. And African Americans have had higher infant mortality than whites and other groups over the years in this country. And even when infant mortality, as it has been coming down over the decades, the difference between the infant mortality for blacks and the infant mortality for whites remains um, essentially twice as high. So that's a problem not only because of the, the deaths 
of these uh, incidents and the stress and emotional um, consequences for the immediate family, but it's also a problem because it signals the burden of social stress and duress that our community is experiencing. Um, in terms of access, in terms of healthcare, in our society, because we are uh, an aging society, we're a society that lives longer, um, and we, because we have the technology, we rely more on healthcare, even though um, we should think of health as broader than just healthcare. Um, in public health, often we talk about healthcare, but we draw the distinction by thinking of healthcare more as disease care, in the sense that we seek healthcare because we have disease, and increasingly because we're trying to prevent disease. Um, but we want to focus on promoting health that's not just limited to health care. That's right. In, in the context of health care, health care has become so central in how we shape um, well-being in this country that if you don't have access to health care, it can really hamper what options you have for a, a, achieving health and maintaining it. But it's important to note that Although access to health care is limited access to health care is one way that disparities occur. Um, there are also disparities within the health care system in terms of, for instance, the quality of care that people get within health care systems, um, both because different kinds of care are available in different kinds of places, for instance. Um, African-American physicians, for instance, have greater difficulty getting access to the same hospitals and the same um, professional resources that other physicians have. Um, hospitals that have fewer resources, obviously, are not able to compete with hospitals that have uh, greater resources. And many in our community uh, seek their care at these kinds of facilities. Um, and then um, access to good mental health care, uh, including substance use treatment um, and the sort of ancillary services that also contributes to the kinds of disparities that we see. Dr. Yeah. Ford, I, I think what, what you are describing, I'm, I'm so sorry that we're out of time, but what you're describing is really a holistic picture uh, when we talk about healthcare generally and black health in particular. There's so many different aspects that we have to look at. And indeed, in our next segment, we're going to be talking about Superfund sites. And one of the, the things um, I discovered in researching it is that if you live close to a highly toxic site, which a quarter of the black and brown people in the United States do, it literally shortens your life. But Dr. Ford, we really need a full hour on this. And please think about when you would have time to do that. And we could even pre-record a full hour with you to discuss all of this in great detail, because I'm afraid we are going to have to end it there. But before you go, though, Dr. Ford, for people who want to find out about the Center at UCLA, the Center for the Study of Racism, Social Justice, and Health, what should they do? Is there a website that they can go to to get information? 
Yes, the website is racialhealthequity.org, racialhealthequity.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at RacialHealthEQ. All righty. On that note, we are going to have to leave it there. But Dr. Ford, we'll have you back. Thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you for the opportunity and the important work you do. All righty. And all the best for Black History Month. We are now going to take our station break. And then we return our weekly Earth Watch. And coming up later in the hour, you won't want to miss David Trujillo, who has a brand new play. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you, Alicia. Really good choice there. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Check out our website at sotrueradio.org, our handle on Twitter and Instagram at sotrueradio. And we are nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And within the United States today, we'd like to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in St. Louis, Missouri. Our SoundCloud listeners, St. Louis, Missouri, and internationally, a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in London, England. This is Margaret. Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And now we turn our attention to our weekly Earth Watch. A study in the United States has shown that living near a toxic waste site is not only hazardous to your health, it can literally reduce your life expectancy, in particular for impoverished people. A Superfund site is one that is extremely contaminated. Best known uh, is likely, some of you may recall, the Love Canal Superfund site that was based in Niagara Falls, New York. Now, Love Canal was the location where the health of residents were impacted by decades of dumping by the Hooker Chemical Company. Leukemia, birth defects, miscarriages, and more and other ailments were suffered by residents close to the site. The cleanup effort took 21 years. Now there are 1,300 and more, a bit more Superfund sites in the United States. And now a billion dollars in President Biden's infrastructure bill will go to cleaning up 49 toxic sites. According to the EPA, 60% of the sites are in historically underserved community, a quarter of Black and Latino people live within three miles of a Superfund site. There's a high concentration of contamination on indigenous lands due to toxic mining and other extractive industries. Let us go now to a clip about Superfund sites. In 1980, the Carter administration decided to address years of environmental degradation by creating the Comprehensive Environmental Response Compensation Liability Act, which is commonly known as Superfund. Superfund establishes requirements concerning closed and abandoned hazardous waste sites, holds responsible parties liable for releases of hazardous waste, and establishes a fund to pay for remediation when a responsible party cannot be identified. Superfund is not necessarily a cradle-to-grave statute. 
It was established to clean up years of hazardous waste before disposal practices were being regulated, which is why many responsible parties cannot be identified. Hazardous waste in designated Superfund sites almost always end up affecting drinking water. In fact, all six of the recently delegated Superfund sites involve some sort of groundwater contamination. Over periods of time, toxic sludge and vapor plumes at these abandoned hazardous waste sites seep into groundwater. The concern to humans is that the same contaminated groundwater is commonly being used as drinking sources for communities. The Superfund National Priorities List is significant because it's EPA's way of identifying that there's a serious problem that requires some sort of federal involvement. A site can be removed from the National Priorities List once all response and remediation action has occurred. Total remediation of a Superfund site can take decades because of the scope of groundwater and soil contamination. Alrighty, that uh, about Superfund sites. Now, today for our focus, for years, activists have worked to draw attention to the West Lake Landfill in Missouri, which is a Superfund site. It encases a radioactive fire that is currently burning underground, if you would believe this. The radioactive burning Superfund site has sat in the middle of St. Louis, a St. Louis, uh, Missouri community for over 45 years, leaving surface-level radioactive waste to blow and be subject to all the elements. The Westlake landfill is experiencing an active fire deep underground, a heat-producing reaction occurring deep within the landfill. It causes waste to decompose at an accelerated rate, producing excess gas and liquid and the results in a pungent odor byproduct of this gas and liquid. Now, all of this sits on the floodplain of the Missouri River, where radioactive contaminants are spreading to other neighboring communities along the river. The EPA classified this as a Superfund uh, site um, and put it on the national priority list in uh, 1992. That was 30 years ago. But what has happened uh, since then? Uh, let us welcome our guest, uh, Dawn uh, Chapman, a resident who lives near the landfill. And uh, Dawn runs the nonprofit organization Just Moms STL, which is for uh, St. Louis, working in tandem with her co-founder, Karen Nickel. Just Moms is an advocacy group formed with the goal of raising awareness and community community engagement regarding the West Lake Landfill Superfund site. Uh, she lives mere miles from the landfill and became uh, engaged in this effort in 2013 after she contacted the Missouri Department of Natural Resources regarding the horrible smell. Um, and that call led Dawn, she says, on an unlikely journey from housewife and mother of three to becoming a campaigner and a repository of knowledge and history about uh, this site. Dawn Chapman, we're so happy that you're able to join us. Okay, so Dawn, I, I hope the that little summary I gave was pretty accurate as to the, the situation, but I imagine it must be so debilitating to, first of all, live with a, a constant horrible smell, 
uh, but also knowing the health impacts on your children, on your community of this Superfund site. And tell us a bit about that because you've been campaigning uh, to get this cleaned up. Why? What have been the impacts that you know of? So I will just tell you, too, um, I think it's important to point out that I am a white female. And as difficult as this has been for, um, you know, my coworker and I, my neighbor and I do this, I think it's important for the audience to understand that if you are a black or a Latino individual and you are fighting this fight, it's 20 times harder, at least, if not 50. You know, the ability for us to um, walk out of our house and smell the contamination makes it... Um, makes it easier to identify because so many communities, as you pointed out, you know, a, a fourth of every black and Latino individual in the United States lives next to one of these hazardous sites and doesn't know it and is probably sick from these sites and doesn't know it. With us in our community, we can smell it. So we know it's there. We didn't when we moved in because the odors didn't arrive until the fire arrived in 2010, right around that time. So, um, you know, once we realized what we were living next to, um, it didn't take long for all of us to start talking and noticing the health issues. You know, our community is plagued with rare cancers. We have um, a 300% increase in childhood brain cancer. We have um, autoimmune diseases on, on multiple on every street. You know, we have um, rare um, spinal cord issues. You know, it, it everything started to make sense when we learned about this site and learned how long we were allowed to live next to it without knowing. It's just an outrage. And, you know, Dawn, for, for many, many years, um, I lived in El Sereno in East Los Angeles. And there was definitely uh, times where you could smell also in, in the water. And we knew that there were there were a lot of factories uh, creating cancer causing, you know, they put up a little sign saying, well, this could cause cancer, but excuse me, you're literally living there. And I notice a lot of the children, um, you know, with my daughter growing up, were suffering from respiratory um, issues. And I have respiratory issues now as a result. So you're absolutely right. Those of us who are black, brown, indigenous living in these types of environments. And Dawn, also, you know, a lot of these sites are not exactly in very wealthy uh, communities. And, you know, there's That's a correct. saying that when uh, white people catch a cold, black people get pneumonia, you know, so even, you know, we, we know that there is that kind of impact. But uh, tell us what you are demanding right now. What is it that you want the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, to do? Because some funding, uh, um, I understand, is available from this infrastructure um, bill, uh, President Biden's infrastructure bill. So w what are you demanding? So, I mean, we're demanding that a cleanup begin immediately. We have a plan at our site. And I'll tell you, and this is going to make you furious, our site doesn't even need any of that infrastructure money because the government, the Department of Energy, created the radioactive waste that sits at our site. So there is actually an account out there with $750 million that they have had sitting in it since 2006 to clean our site. Our site is estimated to only cost a third of that amount. So they could start tomorrow and have money left over to put towards other sites in Ferguson, 
and blackjack all throughout North County, which is a predominantly black and brown community. And I'm furious right now with the Biden administration. I'll be very honest, because it sounds like a lot of money, right, to put towards these other sites and the communities. And I'm glad that they're focusing on environmental justice. But what that means is it's not just about going in there and cleaning up those sites. It's about going in there and fixing the reason why those sites were allowed to pop up in those communities in the first place. I mean, we have to look at that. Why is it that a fourth of black and brown people living in the United States live next to a hazardous site? It's just there are reasons why polluters choose to target these communities, and that has to stop. Absolutely. And for people, uh, Dawn, who want to support um, your efforts of Just Moms uh, STL and, and the work you're doing in, in St. Louis, I mean, your analysis is just a spot on, by the way. We also want to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Minute and our weekly Earth Watch. So um, we, we are uh, basically out of time, uh, Dawn. This is such an important um, work that you're doing very close to my heart here, to my lungs <laughs> in particular. But what can people do if they want to be in touch with you and find out more about your work and to support your work? Uh, Dawn Chapman. Facebook at Just Moms STL. You can also find us on online. We have a website at, at JustMomsSTL.com. And if you or anybody are listening that live next to a contaminated site, please reach out to us because we're not just concerned about our situation. We're concerned about yours as well. And we'd like to see if we can help you. And um, I think it's going to take an army to tackle this. And I think that all the people living next to these contaminated sites need to come together and, and really put pressure on the administration. Right. Well, I'll be in touch with you because my community needs help, <laughs> Dawn. So thank you so very much for your work and thank you for joining us. Take good thank care. Thank you now. so much. All righty. And we're going to wrap up our show now. We're going to be hearing from David Trujillo. This is part of our interrelationship with art and politics uh, segment. Um, and we're focusing today on the work of David Trujillo, including his latest play, Legacy of a Garage Band. Now, David has a history of community activism, including in the arts. He helped to establish the Chicano Writers Workshop and the Chicano Theater Group Teatro a la Brava. He was part of the movement against the Vietnam War, was part of the 1970 National Chicano Moratorium. His activism continues up to this day. David, just so much history there. We're really happy to be able to have you on the show today. Well, thank you, Margaret. I appreciate uh, you allowing uh, me to come on and talk about the new play, uh, and especially on this uh, Black History Month. Uh, uh, I think we believe that uh, we should uh, people of color should uh, speak about their history every day, uh, not just in uh, one particular month, especially given the conditions right. we live under with banning books and blaming people of color for all kinds of things. So, uh, again, we should be teaching uh, our history and in our homes, in our streets, in the parks, and especially in the schools. Right. Well, you 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 have never stopped um, your activism and, and then just expressing it in the arts. So really important. And by the way, we want to uh, thank our, uh, I refer to him as our in-house poet, Ron Baca, for helping us with uh, today's uh, segment. But David, tell us about this brand new play and uh, also how our listeners uh, would be able to see it. Yes, uh, this is a... <clears throat> 
This, uh, this play uh, is called The Legacy of the Garage Band, and it actually fits in well with the theme of your, your show today because the deeper message uh, of this play has to deal with uh, the opioid crisis and mental health. And uh, as you, you are aware, <clears throat> and I'm, many of the audience are aware, that uh, uh, those issues are unrecognized in our communities, black and brown communities. So this uh, play deals with that. We don't preach about it, but we tell the story about it. And we use the garage band as the as the emphasis to, to get this message out. Uh, and it's, uh, it's a, a, a one-hour play that's going to take place at the Long Beach Playhouse. Uh, and um, uh, if you want more information, you can get it at uh, ibplayhouse.org. Uh, and uh, the play is scheduled to premiere February the 11th at 8 p.m., February the 12th, 8 p.m., and uh, Sunday, February 13th at 2 o'clock uh, matinee, and uh, directed by uh, my son, David Reyes, and he's directed most of my other uh, other plays. So it, 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 it's a play that has a very deep message, and uh, I hope that people uh, make some time to come out to Long Beach and see this uh, important play. Yeah, really great that you're able to work with your, your son, David Reyes, in, in, in that way. But, you know, for uh, David, for People who may be listening, young people in particular, but not only uh, young uh, Chicano, Chicano um, youth who are interested in, in the arts, but also interested in political activism and activism. I, could you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems as though throughout your life, you have weaved this, um, the, those elements, and also you have stressed the importance that our communities have important stories to tell, and we have to be the ones to tell to tell them. So uh, just, you know, for people who are, who may be thinking about uh, following a similar path to you, be, being a writer, but also, uh, or being a playwright or being a poet or just generally doing the arts, but also want to remain deeply connected to their communities. Tell us a bit about your journey, David, and what advice that you could offer to others. Well, uh, my advice to uh, young people in particular is that uh, if, if you have have uh, uh, an urge to uh, create. Uh, go ahead and and create. Write. Uh, you write because you have to write. Uh, and if you just look at uh, what's happening in our communities, uh, uh, these are things that we should be writing about. <clears throat> Don't be afraid to to uh, take the 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 pen or the computer and begin writing. Talk about your experiences. Uh, look at your 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 past history of your family. Write about that. We have so many talented uh, uh, individuals in our communities that need to express themselves, <clears throat> and uh, you're going to uh, hit walls. <clears throat> uh, I know when I when I uh, attempted to uh, finance and produce my own plays. I've had people uh, in the so-called industry tell me, well, you can't do that. It's too difficult. Uh, you know, it's almost as if they were trying to uh, uh, force me uh, uh, to fail. Uh, but it should be our responsibility as uh, uh, in our community, especially young people, to break down those walls. Uh, many of us have been doing that for a long time, and unfortunately, we still have to break down those walls. Uh, and... Uh, I write about my own experiences, but I want to do it in a 
in a very creative way. I want to do it uh, telling a story. <clears throat> and uh, I believe that we are all storytellers. Uh, and uh, our, our youth have to pick up that, uh, that pen and, and uh, create those stories, get them out. Uh, uh, like I mentioned earlier, we have to tell our history every day. We are under attack by the right wing in this country, uh, and uh, one of the ways to fight back is to get out our stories uh, and do it in, in a very uh, 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 emotional yet uh, uh, productive way. Uh, so that, that again, my advice is to don't stop. If you want to cre be creative, go with it. Push it, push it, and uh, our stories will get out, and uh, and that needs to get done. And not to give up, and uh, you know, also that all these stories are are important because you know sometimes people think, well, it's just me, and it's my life, and my grandma or my mom or the immigrant experience, and like you know, who's interested in that, right? Um, so I I think that advice of of knowing that your story is important and that there are people out there who will relate to it. But finally, David, I've heard from other artists before, people who write, who say you write because you have to write. You just mentioned that phrase for those for those people who are not writers or who feel writing challenged. Um, just explain that a minute. Uh, what do you mean by you write because you have to write? Uh, writing is just another form of expressing yourself. So when you uh, uh, experience uh, uh, something in your life, you just don't want to keep it inside you. Uh, uh, and especially if you think it's important, uh, get it out. Uh, you have a sense and actually a duty to get it out. Uh, now, it doesn't have to be a... Uh, you know uh, the most important uh, experience you've you, you've had. It might just be a relationship or or something that you've seen down the street or in your church. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, and we had tendency to keep these things inside. <clears throat> and uh, when I when I need to ride, that's my way of expressing myself. It's another way of expressing myself. And uh, uh, we have a tendency to try to uh, to. To not bring that out, we suppress it, uh, and uh, I want to open it up. Uh, we should be open about our expressions, and one way to do that is is to write. And I think a lot of people they have that feeling; they just don't know exactly how to how to bring it out or or, or uh, 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 which direction to go. And the direction to go is to take that pen, take that computer, put it down, and. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, write about it. Uh, and and uh, and and on another issue is that uh, you know these stories that we talk about, uh, we want to bring in new people to the theater, new audiences to the theater. Uh, and uh, uh, theater shouldn't just be for those who are elitists. You know, uh, a lot of people think that uh, the theater is is for the elite, but we want to make the theater for the grassroots working people come out and one way to do that is to tell our stories <clears throat> and the other way to do that is for all of us to begin seeing the importance of the need to 
write and bring out our stories. The legacy of a garage band. We'll put that information out on social media out uh, uh, in Long Beach. David Trujillo, thank you so very much for joining us. We, we got to go, uh, I'm afraid. Thanks. All righty. All the best to you. Okay. Today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. Uh, I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, on the boards today, our board op, uh, Jose Benavides, Sojourner Truth. We'll be back on the air tomorrow with our weekly roundtable. You won't want to miss that. Thank you so very much for listening. And you all remember to please stay safe and our outro song, Respiration by Most Deaf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>